So Patrick Sherman, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thanks, Howard. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk to you ever since I saw the amazing uh, Go Sun Stove video on my Facebook feed, and I immediately checked it out. And so can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about yourself, about how you got to uh, being the president, founder, and inventor of GoSun. Well, thanks. That's flattering. I uh, guess I've been involved in uh, renewable energy and in environmentally appropriate uh, technology for a long, long time. Um, kind of interested myself in it in high school um, uh, based on a desire to kind of come up with solutions to the problems that we're creating around fossil fuels. And... Um, Solar and renewable energy struck me as uh, as a strong solution, one that uh, was originally quite frustrating because it was super expensive and didn't really work very well. Uh, so it needed a lot of attention and time. And uh, being a, uh, a bit of an engineer-minded fella, I, uh, I applied that, uh, that, that type of thinking uh, throughout uh, my college era and I was real excited to, to get my hands on uh, green building as soon as I got out of school. And um, I've, uh, you know, kind of lived a number of lives in, in the industry. When you get into solar, you end up being um, uh, uh, pulled into uh, biofuel, wind energy, uh, energy efficiency, and, and the like. At uh, uh, low cost, simple, and passive technologies were things that uh, to me seemed to be the most sensible. Um, and then I stumbled into the Go Sun based on uh, some solar thermal, some solar water heating technology that I was working with about 10 years ago on a rooftop. It was actually um, a system that was old and no longer working, and I was decommissioning it. And the customer said, oh, I, don't, I don't want it on my roof anymore. Just take it out of here. So I brought it home to my backyard and started playing around and discovered that uh, that these solar hot water heaters were fantastic hot dog cookers. Huh. And uh, within uh, within uh, ten minutes, I sizzled some some dogs, and then I was like, "Well, why why aren't more people cooking inside these things? And why shouldn't I uh, turn this into some level of a business?" And so here we are, ten years later, with the ghost on stove. Wow. So when when I think about solar, mostly I think about disappointment. So, you know, I like the, the first time I heard about solar, it was just so cool. And then someone showed me a teeny little, I think it was like from Radio Shack, a teeny little chip that you could use to power a fan. And you put your hand in front of the chip and the fan would stop and you'd remove your hand and the fan would start again. And I just thought, my God, this is amazing. This is the answer to all the world's problems. And then I started, you know, I was maybe, you know, 10 or 11 at the time. But even, even then, quickly looking at it, it seemed like there were huge problems with with cost, with the um, the environmental costs of of the technology, and with just people having um, sort of a, a technological mindset around around solar, like like it was going to be some sort of cure. Um, sure. How did you know? Did you when you first heard solar? Yeah. Did you think like? You know, hype. Or, oh yeah, I definitely. Uh, I share a lot of those same frustrations. I I, uh, I originally saw it on the solar space station, and so it was only affordable by by a federal 
budget, you know, by NASA. And so, uh, you know, how can I get my hands on it? How can I bring this down to earth quite literally? Uh, well, you can't, you know, that was the first message back in the late nineties. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, a man of action and I like to think about what can I do on my own? You know, I don't, I don't want to try to be reliant on others and multinational corporations and the like. So that was my original frustration with solar. It just seemed like I couldn't build it. I couldn't afford it. And uh, certainly that has changed quite a bit. Uh, but um, the environmental impact of the, of the solar industry is something I've examined quite readily. And uh, being, I've, I've done a lot of instructing in, the te- in this field. So I've had student groups really do a lot of research into it. And uh, it's actually quite uh, uh, a mute issue in, with respect to the overall embodied energy and life cycle analysis of the solar uh, pretty much any solar technology you look at is going to recoup its invested energy within the first couple of years, just as a general rule of thumb. And these are technologies that are designed to last at least 25 years. Mm-hmm. So the more solar, the better at this stage in the game. And um, what's interesting about the the overall you know, uh, story behind solar in my life is that uh, you know, what originally started uh, was something that was relatively frustrating to to own and to understand uh, has become more and more accessible every year, and it's really phenomenal the the cost that solar has achieved just in the last five years or so. It has really changed the game to making it far more accessible than we might have ever thought. Hmm. And then, yeah, I'm seeing that too. I'm seeing tax breaks. I guess there's a lot of production moving to China, bringing costs down and enforcing uh, mm-hmm. competition. Um, so when I when I looked into um, solar energy for my house, you know, electrical energy, um, I was I was told before you do that to start with water. Um, Mm-hmm. The person said that using um, using coal coal fired electricity to heat your water is like using a chainsaw to cut butter. Do you, do you agree that water is the kind of the place to start? Yeah, that's been the conventional thinking within the solar energy industry. Uh, you know, the the first type of solar energy that was well known and it was largely championed by Jimmy Carter in the 1970s is solar hot water heating for domestic use, and it is really basic technology. Uh, the principles of passive solar and, and even some active pumped solar has been along, around for a long, long time. Um, it's, uh, you know, efficiencies can be achieved around 60%, and daily savings are usually in the range of a dollar or two with a, uh, a solar hot water system on a rooftop, uh, supplying the average American household with around uh, two-thirds of their hot water needs on an annual basis. Um, the return on investment for solar hot water is, is usually below 10 years. And so, yes, it is typically the best uh, bang for the buck, especially for people owning pools. Solar pool heaters uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line are really a, a phenomenal investment if you have the roof space. Uh, uh, but yeah, solar hot water heating for year-round domestic production is great. 
you can usually get a system installed for around $5,000 and again, save around $600 a year or so. Solar electric is uh, almost uh, in competition with those same economics now with solar hot water. And the real difference between solar hot water and solar electric is, is that in, in the electric, the photovoltaic effect, you really don't have moving parts or you don't, you don't have to deal with water through the circuit. You're dealing with electrons. And electrons are a lot easier to deal with. Mm. <laughs> water always finds its way out. And uh, so you, you have to deal with leaks and maintenance and overheating and things of that nature. Whereas with electric, it's really simple to rely on the circuitry to take care of the system and really have it become a maintenance-free installation for years and years. So the average residents may not be able to, to get away with a $5,000 solar electric system, but maybe more like a $15,000 system. But there's um, 30% federal tax credits. I should state that federal tax credit is also available for solar hot water heating as well. Those tax credits are available through the year 2017, I believe. Okay, so so we've got it's it's kind of complicated. the The bottom line is the more solar, the better. The costs are getting lower. The technology is improving every year. Now is a great time to buy, and next year will be a great time to buy. But let's let's talk about something sort of way sexier and cooler, which is the stove that that you invented by just repurposing an existing technology for for something new. So for, for people who haven't seen it yet, can you describe the GoSun stove? Yeah, it's a high-efficiency, portable solar cooker that makes a meal in around 20 minutes, utilizing an evacuated tube, which is a ver variety of solar hot water heating technology that I've adapted for cooking. There's two layers of Pyrex glass with a vacuum between the two layers, making a perfect insulator. And that enables the Gosun stove to cook foods any day of the year on a variety of light intensity levels. In other words, you can cook in some cloud covers. You can cook on freezing cold and windy days. The technology is super efficient. We're receiving efficiencies around 80%. We combine some reflectors that triple the amount of light that hits the evacuated tube, which is where the cooking is conducted. So it's certainly a one-of-a-kind way for for cooking and uh, for capturing solar energy, for that matter. And uh, at efficiencies that approach 80%, it's one of the first solar devices that really brings the power of the sun down on a, a digestible level, pardon the pun, but on a level that you can you can really feel and see. So uh, about how big is it? So you say it's portable. What is it? Yeah, we have several models in production, uh, some of some of which are just small. The very beginning, the very earliest uh, cooker that I ever made handled hot dogs. And so to stay true to our inception, we've got the GoSun Mini, which is uh, just able to handle a couple of sausages. And then stepping up from there, we have the GoSun Sport, which is kind of our flagship model what we uh, achieved success through on Kickstarter last year, 2013. The GoSun Sport can handle about three pounds of uh, food at once, uh, enough to feed a few people. Um, that device 
is the most versatile that we have at the moment. It uh, enables the user to also heat uh, fluids through the use of a secondary accessory, handling about 14 ounces of water at once and taking that up to 20 uh, uh, temperature for coffee or tea in about 20 minutes. The Ghost Sun Sport also um, collapses. Uh, basically, the reflectors fold, the legs come up, and the whole thing turns into a, uh, a very simple, easy, durable, well-protected, uh, uh, portable apparatus that you can throw in the back of your trunk, put on a backpack, put on a sailboat, and uh, take it anywhere where there's ever a hot uh, hot meal desired and hungry hungry folks, you're good to go. Great. So um, a lot of my uh, listeners would, uh, wouldn't have hot dogs or sausages. They might have a tofurkey <laughs> or, or a knot dog or something like go. that. But it, you have a lot of the pictures on the website show um, vegetables. Looks like almost like a, a kebab without the stick inside the tube. So mm-hmm. you can cook vegetables in... in uh, can it do grains as well, rice or stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, we're doing a lot. These are great questions, and um, we're doing a lot more work with um, with the exploration around staple foods. Um, we're working on a larger version of the Gosun. Uh, we were grant-funded by the Global Alliance for Clean Cookstoves, and we're doing work down in Latin America at the moment. And we're, we're working down there in both rural, rural and urban environments with women to try to get them to cook staple foods, the stuff that they make every single day, such as corn, rice, and beans. And we're having great success. Uh, bottom line, there really isn't anything that you can't cook in the ghost hunt except for things that, that you really want to, like, sear or fry. And, of course, you can't cook a large piece of steak, for example. It is a tubular cooking de- device. But we're finding folks are baking breads, they're roasting root veggies, they're doing what's called a stew fry. Um, the, there isn't a big issue with grains. It's just a matter of finding the right combination of, uh, of moisture. Moisture is typically trapped inside the tube when you're cooking, so you can't really overcook stuff very easily, even though you're operating at an, in, an inside temperature that approaches 500 degrees. Uh, as long as there's moisture in the food, that that uh, temperature inside is usually closer to the upper 300s, lower 400 degree Fahrenheit. So you, you keep the food in an environment that keeps it from blackening or caramelizing too much. Mm-hmm. So when I, I told my son that I was going to interview you today, you know, that you invented a solar stove, his first thought was like, oh, I'd love to cook a pizza. And so, you know, mm-hmm. which reminded me that when people think of a stove, they think of something more or less square or round. The, the, the ghost sun looks nothing like that. You know, I'm looking at the, the mm-hmm. pro pack right now. It's got two of the, uh, the cooking tubes and they, they kind of look like lightsabers. You know, this is, this is a very, mm-hmm. it, it really breaks with, um, you know, it really is out of the box. Um, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively in what a stove could be. When you first, after you cooked the hot dogs, did it occur to you that th- that it was good for anything but hot dogs? Like, how, how did that um, evolution come about? Yeah, that's a good one. Well, again, it was about 10 years ago, and for the first 
now five or six years of using this technology, I literally only made uh, round tubular objects that I also like to eat veggie and tofurkey dogs, not dogs, soy boys. So uh, we would usually bring two tubes to an event or a gathering, and we would have one with an all-beef dog and then another with a veggie dog. I, I started to experiment with, like, tiny little new potatoes and, you know, finding tiny little pieces of eggplant and garlic and things from the garden. Uh, but obviously that was fairly limited. And a big problem was getting the, the food back out. And, you know, uh, if you look at the ghost hunt now, one of the key features is a cooking tray, which is a stainless steel canoe-shaped trough where you load the food in that. It has a separate handle that you can hold to carry the food in and out of the evacuated tube. So before you were just, uh, you were made, just stuffing it into the glass tube. And so the stuff that's was, right. <laughs> you, kind of need, you needed like <laughs> a is, vacuum cleaner to get it out. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. And, and also one of the other big things that I'd never realized uh, for the first five years was that I could place the tube in a horizontal fashion because every time you see an evacuated tube on a rooftop or otherwise, it's in a vertical position, <laughs> some some tilt angle. And so what I used to do was I had like a giant skewer. I these tubes, these original tubes were six feet long. So I would skewer up about 12 hot dogs or not dogs and put them inside and hope that they wouldn't fall off the skewer when they were done. It was time to pull them out. And you have this giant six foot long skewer of of super hot you know, hot dogs on the end, and so the, a bit of a, a bit of a comic comical scene. And I knew for sure this wasn't going to be commercialized. Um, I had a bit of an aha moment when I saw a two foot long tube on a table at a solar event, like a conference. So it was one of these display units, and I thought, oh, a two foot unit I could end up working with. And then the next big aha moment was, again, to, to drop the device into a horizontal position and incorporate a cooking tray for getting food in and out. Mm. It, it reminds me of a, a, a mentor of mine, um, Ken McCarthy, quotes, I, can't, I don't remember who the quote is from, but he says that the definition of creativity is the sudden cessation of stupidity. It's like these things that you're <laughs> describing... Like, you know, they seem, so true. they seem obvious now, like make it horizontal. That way the liquid won't fall out. And yet your whole life you'd seen them vertical or tilted. Like it was, it was a remarkable leap to, uh, to get That's to where right. it is now. You really, in the creative process, you really do have to approach, uh, a lot of failures. You have to, you have to really, uh, uh, fearlessly, go at problems and not be afraid of making lots and lots of mistakes. I think any inventor has, uh, has incorporated a lot of what's considered ad hocism into their work where, yeah, they might be experts in a field and some people put them on a, on an elevated position of knowing everything. Well, I think they probably know the right questions to ask, know some limitations. And then they just started tinkering, just started trying stuff out. Uh, there was probably a lot of failures, and in those failures, there's a lot of learning. So, yeah, I mean, for example, one day I had uh, wrapped up at an event. I, I strapped the old original GoSun onto the rooftop of my Honda Civic and headed off down the road. I hit the brakes, 
and about a liter of nasty hot dog grease splashed onto the windshield of my car. And let me tell you, I had to sell that car because the smell of hot dog grease would not get out of the thing. Uh, <laughs> that was an unfortunate learning process there. Oh, gosh. So so, so was, was the learning to re-engineer the stove or not put it on the roof of the car? <laughs> Both. That was pretty much at that point. I took a couple year hiatus on eating meat too. Like it, 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 that just turned my stomach. That, that hot dog grease. Uh, well, my, <laughs> my, my vegan listeners are going to start thinking about uh, activism now. Um, so um, you've you had a Kickstarter campaign. You sold a bunch of them. You mostly get the word out by going to like a shows and fairs and conferences and things like that. What's what's it like? You know, I'm imagining that you're you've got one of these you know ten by ten uh, little canopies, and you're sur- you know, surrounded by twenty or thirty or a hundred other vendors. What's it like when you start showing off the ghost sun? What's people's reaction? Well, you get a lot of uh, rubbernecking from from the other vendors, and uh, they, they definitely recognize where we're uh, unconventional because we don't bring a ten by ten pop up, and we just kind of set up and kind of spill out into the yard or into the, the road, wherever it is. And, uh, you know, for the first half an hour, you just get questions and questions and questions. And I tend to say, hey, uh, hold on a second. You know, you're, you're standing in my sun a little. You're, you're shading the device. Give me, give me a minute. And within a half an hour, boom, the first meal is made. And they see, you know, roasted eggs coming out, you know, perfect little frittata, for example. And they're just like, oh. Okay, I understand. You know what they were probably jeering at and and kind of snickering to themselves. They all of a sudden kind of got silenced and and we're picking away at some omelets as we're setting up the next display, uh, setting up the next course. We try to cook all day when we go to events, which is pretty exhausting because the thing cooks so fast you can hardly keep up with it. You can't you know you can't clean it out and reload it fast enough because it's just every twenty minutes there's another course ready. Uh, but, uh, we love going to events. I get a lot of jaw drops. Um, I get a lot of people that'll step up when the device is closed, you know, the cooking tray is inserted inside and all is coming out of the handle. They come up and they look at it and they have no idea what it is. And they're just thinking, okay, this guy's selling lights or hmm, looks like one of those old vacuum tubes from, you know, my childhood, but I to the radio with a tube like this. Uh, and they'll ask questions, you know, like, what is that? And I, I love messing with people a little bit, you know. Well, we work for the Department of Defense, and this is a missile launching system. You know, it, always get a couple of good, what? And then you pull the food out, and they say, ah, okay, I thought it might have something to do with cooking. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, <laughs> well, let's... Uh, I have a really inelegant segue from Department of Defense to what you're doing internationally. Um, mm-hmm. So I know, uh, having lived in Africa for a year, I saw firsthand a lot of you know, the respiratory problems that are caused by dirty cooking, which, you know, exacerbated by tin roofs and um, it, poor f- fuel supply since the, the preferred trees um, that provided hardwood are, are gone. Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, that issue and, and how the sun stove is helping? 
Yeah, yeah. This is a an epic issue. It's uh, the one of the world's leading causes of preventable death. Uh, it's smoke inhalation that we're addressing on one front, which is the human health front. These families typically cook with open fires indoors. And so you could imagine the amount of, the picture having a campfire in your kitchen, uh, the, the amount of strain that puts on a respiratory lung infection. Uh, a young child will become infected, you know, say you know, a two-year-old toddler and simply cannot get over pneumonia. Uh, the amount of deaths that are happening on an annual basis are, are up to around 4 million. A lot of those occur in Africa, um, but of course this problem spans the entire globe. There is around 2.5 billion people still cooking with solid fuels on a daily basis. And that, those solid fuels are either wood, charcoal, or some, some variety of biomass often related to animal waste. The Global Alliance for Clean Cookstoves has been formulated about five or six years ago, I think largely with support of uh, Hillary Clinton, among others, to try to address this issue and employ around 100 million clean cookstoves throughout the world by the year 2020. Uh, they are a part of the United Nations Foundation, and they are gaining significant traction they spent the first couple of years sort of gathering data and figuring out where uh, this problem is the worst and, and uh, starting to identify partners that are working in the sector. Um, and the, the sector cr crosses into multiple fuel sources. Uh, we are the first to, to be identified as one of the solar or fuel-free sources within the Global Alliance, but the, the, they address folks that uh, produce propane-fired stoves, uh, ethanol-fired stoves, of course, uh, the wood and charcoal, and also uh, briquettes and like the animal waste biomass and things. So, depending on the region, uh, they they partner with organizations to begin to uh, to knock out this issue. One of their their big things is to get clean cook stoves into these families at, a, at an affordable cost, market-driven type of solution where the family identifies that this is something they want and need and they bring up uh, the $50 together that it takes to, to buy one of these. And then what those stoves often do is eliminate, uh, you know, say sometimes 90% of the emissions when compared to the open, you know, campfire in the kitchen. So they're getting the same job done. They're using half the wood and they're indoor air environment is is increased drastically. Uh, our effort is to completely remove the indoor air pollution related to solid fuels and to do a full fuel conversion from the solid fuels to uh, solar for the majority of your cooking needs, which we feel is very reasonable and, and, and appropriate with the GoSun stove. And when solar's not available or good enough or it's, you know, very late at night, then we look at uh, propane. So we've completely taken fire, uh, solid fuel-based fire, out of the home. And we're saving huge amounts of time and energy. Uh, during our pilot study performed in Guatemala, we saved an average of two hours per day per family uh, on uh, gathering firewood. 
and probably another hour or two on uh, uh, cooking over the open fire, stoking the fire and things. And so with that time, they can produce more uh, in the garden or what have you, uh, and therefore have some time and economic savings to be able to afford propane as the, the second fuel to get the job done. So let's talk a little bit about your decision to be a market-driven for-profit company instead of just you know a nonprofit or NGO. What's what's behind um, the the decision to structure your company that way? And are, are you sort of like a Tom's mm-hmm. buy one get one or some some variation where people in in the West who pay full price are subsidizing? How, how does all that work? Yeah, I think we're a more of a social enterprise. Uh, than than a purely capitalistic business. Obviously, uh, we we have to make a profit. Uh, we feel like we have to use um, market based incentives to to uh, to perform our work. In other words, if we don't have a nice product that people want to buy, then we don't really have. Then we're not fulfilling our purpose as a company. Um, so you know, I kind of started and come from a small business environment. And that's, that's what's familiar to me. Uh, we have considered the idea where we would uh, sort of split our efforts and have a for-profit like we have here in the States and the developing world, the developed world, and then, you know, do a non-profit for our work elsewhere in these emerging markets. Um, at the moment, we're, we're staying pretty small and lean and using the for-profit as a mechanism for doing both. So uh, I guess, you know, we're, again, letting um, market-based uh, drivers uh, facilitate our work, uh, looking at, you know, uh, places where these things can be purchased first and, and not at places where they have to be given away. We don't feel that the model of a pure charity is appropriate. Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't want to say this publicly, but I, I'm not sure that the Tom's model is ideal when it comes to uh, just giving shoes. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense that we would want to give someone something uh, when we come from such wealth and such disparity there. But when you give someone something, they don't necessarily appreciate it as they would if they earned it with a little bit of inputs, you know, even if it was just $2 for that pair of shoes. And we're working on a model that's more about empowerment, local business development, and community strengthening where we're not, uh, we're not coming in and saying, Oh, here's a bunch of stoves and wiping away the existing charcoal industry, uh, uh, we we want to employ folks to build the stoves themselves. We want to make sure that the families that are earning the stoves are are earning them based on their own inputs and desire, and not just something that's been handed to them. Mm, I, I love hearing that because there's so much well-meaning international aid that just has a huge blowback when you know it comes in. It's installed over over the heads of of the the locals and you know as soon as it stops working they you know let it rot or they don't um 
they don't have any stake in its upkeep and it's actually threatening existing patterns. Um, I love the fact that no one gets one without putting some skin in the game. Yeah. And we don't want to be, um, we, we basically, we want to be present wherever we are operating, wherever we're deploying our technology. We want to make sure that, you know, someone from our team directly or one of our trusted partners is there to support, uh, that community. Um, you know, when things are, uh, when, when people don't know how to use the stove or, or heaven forbid, something breaks, uh, we want to be there to answer those questions, answer those problems, and um, really set up, you know, what would be considered a more sustainable exercise. Uh, as I mentioned, local manufacturing base is something that's super important to us right now. Uh, all of this is easy to talk about. It's super difficult to deploy. I mean, giving things away is probably a lot easier than trying to find the right partner who can hire somebody and find manufacturing facilities that are up to standards, you know, to, to make it. But uh, we're taking our time. We're picking one country at a time. We're in Guatemala right now, and uh, we're having good successes down there. It's not easy. And it's not cheap. But uh, if we can prove a model that stands on its own down there, then we feel like we can take it to uh, many, many other countries, Africa being Africa being a region where we would certainly want to start focusing soon. That's awesome. awesome. So uh, if, if folks have heard enough to want to go look at a video, watch a demo, and maybe get their own, uh, both to support this amazing cause and also to be really cool, you know, as well as to cook your food without having to, um, you know, tax, tax Mother Earth's uh, fossil fuel resources. Where should they go? Uh, if you check out gosunstove.com, uh, then if you're interested in making a purchase, we can use a promo code, um, power 50. If you just type that into the purchase of a Ghost Sun Sport or Pro Pack, you'll earn $50 off. Our pricing includes shipping. Uh, we also say that uh, we, we, your, your purchase is helping to fuel an effort in our developing world environment. Currently, we have a five to one, five purchases uh, of a Ghost Sun Sport will enable us to empower a family with a version that's about five times the size. Um, we're looking at uh, how to uh, up that program. And uh, with the help of people like your listeners, we may include uh, a way for folks to just outright support the purchase of a stove that's going to go to a family in need. And then, you know, as we mentioned, being appropriately integrated into that family for years and years of use. Great. So check out ghostonstove.com. Our, our products last, um, you know, their intended life is 25 years. We have a two-year, no question to ask warranty. And uh, we've got about 1,000 units in circulation in about 40 different countries. So it's been a good year. Awesome. So, and, you know, in addition to cooking your food w with the sun, um, it being extremely portable, you don't need to worry about packing matches or uh, lighter fluid, God forbid, or, or however else you were going to start your fire when camping. 
Um, this is also, I think, one of the best ways to be an ambassador for renewable and clean energy is just to go out there and just, you know, mess with people's minds about what's possible. <laughs> You're right, Tom Howard. I, it's really, it's really quite awesome. Uh, kids, especially, you know, uh, it's pretty difficult to, to take a solar panel, which is up on your rooftop and bring it down to a human level and really have a experience or a solar energy experience. But the Gosun stove really does that for folks, really brings it down to their backyards. And uh, it's a bit of an eye opener. You know, it's the foot in the door to a larger conversation around energy literacy and getting folks to understand the power of the sun and then, you know, slowly converting. I think a lot of us probably want to live more off-grid, if you will, or more more appropriate or efficient with technology. And this is a fantastic way to begin the the, the long process of, of going off-grid. Right. Well, Patrick Sherman of GoSunStove.com, I wish you great success. I hope this movement takes over the world. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. All right. Well, thank you so much, Howard. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Awesome. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye.